welcome to another episode of Theology.fm. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. When Christians hear of the Jesus myth, they start to get a little bit nervous. They think of liberal scholars or maybe even atheists talking about how Jesus never really existed, or even if he did, what we have in the Gospels is, can't be historically accurate. In today's episode of Theology.fm, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright shows us that quite likely what you and I believe about Jesus might actually be the Jesus myth. <laughs> Don't get nervous. N.T. Wright, although he is a leading New Testament scholar, he's extremely conservative, and uh, he's going to show you really what Jesus meant, how we can read the Gospels with historical accuracy, and how we can trust really what is written in the Gospels. But he's also going to challenge some of our key and maybe some core beliefs about what Jesus was, who Jesus was, what Jesus taught, and what Jesus meant. You're going to like this podcast from N.T. Wright. I promise you. So, stick around. Hey, and listen, this uh, episode of Theology.fm is sponsored by Logos Bible Software. You can get some of N.T. Wright's stuff through Logos Bible Software. And uh, to do that, though, you're going to need one of their base packages. If you go to Logos Bible Software, you can uh, pick one of their base packages. They start reasonably priced. And uh, if you buy one of those, you can get 15% off your purchase by using my coupon code JMyers6. That'll get you 15% off any purchase of one of their base packages over at Logos.com. The link's in the show notes. With that in mind, let's get on with the show. So N.T. Wright, in case you do not know about him, he's a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He's a leading New Testament scholar in the world today, and he is the author of numerous groundbreaking books. Almost every one of them are groundbreaking, I promise you. If you haven't read anything by N.T. Wright, go to Amazon right now, pick up a few. Uh, Start off with something like Surprised by Hope, maybe, or Simply Jesus. And if you want something to really challenge you, maybe pick up his magnum opus on Paul called Paul and the Faithfulness of God. I have been extremely challenged and instructed, and my theology, my understanding of Scripture and the Gospels has been radically changed and altered by everything I have read by N.T. Wright. I highly recommend everything he says, everything he writes. You're not going to agree with everything, but then you don't agree with everything on anybody. And in fact, you probably don't agree with yourself what you taught five, ten years ago either. So uh, anyway, you go, go pick up something by him. Uh, today, what we're going to see, what he's going to teach us, is that uh, the way we read the Gospels and the understandings we pull from them about Jesus might not be exactly what the Gospels say or what Jesus was all about. So in this lecture by, from N.T. Wright, uh, he presents a framework for understanding Jesus in the Gospels, which begins a, to paint a portrait of Jesus that might be completely different, or at least somewhat different, than the Jesus of popular evangelical Christianity. Uh, just as an example, 
What N.T. Wright says about Jesus' common invitation in the Gospels, um, repent and believe the Gospel, or repent and believe in me. You know, you've heard that, I've heard that, I've preached that. Uh, We've all heard it from pulpits. But what N.T. Wright says about this, it might be shocking for you to hear that uh, what Jesus meant when he said it is not at all how you and I often use that phrase today. We often, you know, talk about personal sins and turning from sins and so that people can receive eternal life, something like that. N.T. Wright points out, pretty persuasively in my opinion, that that is not at all what Jesus meant. So you're going to have to listen to what he says, what N.T. Wright says, to, uh, to understand what Jesus meant by that statement, and it might change how you preach and how you proclaim the gospel yourself. Uh, N.T. Wright also shares some tips on how to understand the parables of Jesus, so if that's interesting to you, make sure you listen to what he says, uh, the prophecies of Jesus, and even a little bit on uh, what other New Testament authors, such as Paul, thought about Jesus, taught about Jesus, and developed theology about Jesus. Uh, N.T. Wright even says some things, some pretty important things about how to understand the titles, such as Messiah or Christ, Son of God, things like that, Um, and, and they don't necessarily mean God in the flesh. That's going to be a challenging idea. Anyway, there's so much groundbreaking information in this lecture, and he packs it all in into only 30 minutes, if you can believe it. It's sort of like uh, drinking from a fire hydrant, I suppose. So uh, I'm going to get out of the way and just uh, let N.T. Wright have the floor. Uh, One last thing, though. It is 30 minutes long. The original lecture, though, was, uh, first of all, it was given in 1996 at Yale University, and so the the audio quality is not the best. I'm going to do what I can to sort of fix it and, and amplify it and clean it up a little bit. But um, it, it was recorded about 20 years ago, so it's not the best. Uh, that's, that's the first thing. Second thing, though, is he really had a little over an hour and a half lecture. 30 minutes was him talking, and then there was another 50 minutes or so of uh, Q&A. I'm not going to include the Q&A section in this episode here. I'm just going to give his lecture, but if you want the follow-up Q&A, 50 50 minutes of Q&A afterwards, then I'm going to include a link in the show notes, and you click on that link, and uh, you can find the episode, the original episode, the original lecture on iTunes as well. You can download it, listen to it there. Sounds good? Okay, with that in mind, let's listen to N.T. Wright. I want this to be very much a dialogue. Uh, I gave a long presentation last night, and I shall give another reasonably long one, God willing, tonight. So I don't. This is not a fully fledged lecture as such. Uh, I want to give you a thumbnail sketch of what I, in company with a number of others, have been working on in relation to Jesus for some while, and uh, I'm therefore going to speak for maybe a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes or so, and then plenty of time for questions and discussion, and believe me, it's uh, an extraordinary exercise trying to compress what one substantially wants to say about Jesus into just a quarter of an hour or 20 minutes, so don't assume that because I haven't said something, it means I don't believe in it. Um, Stephen Sykes, one of our leading Anglican bishops at the moment in the Church of England, um, once said in my hearing that the trouble with theology is that you have to say everything all the time, otherwise someone thinks that you're actually saying you don't believe it, and actually it's physically impossible to say everything all the time, so uh, that's just the way life is. Um, 
before I get underway, an unashamed piece of advertising on behalf of the Oxford Summer School in Religious Studies, which has run for the last ten or a dozen years. It's run by Americans for Americans in Oxford, and there have been a lot of people who've wanted to get there for many years, and they only take 40 at a time, and they have long waiting lists. So what they decided to do this last year was to take one of their lecturers on the road around the States and give a wider audience a chance to hear him, and it happened to be me. And uh, since this was quite fun and people seemed to enjoy it, they decided to do it again in 1996, and I have a bunch of brochures here. Uh, the seminar this year is called Jesus Then and Now and is building on what we did last year and moving on. And uh, I feel rather ambivalent about this because it's an interesting but exhausting task going around from city to city, but it's very exhilarating and exciting. And if you or anyone you know would like to, to get in on that, then do please take one of those brochures. The Oxford Summer School sent them specifically to me here uh, with instructions that I should not have them in my bag when, when I left New Haven. So please help yourself and then that will salve my conscience. Okay, I have seven brief-ish points about Jesus that I want just to put on the table as the starting point for discussion. There's all sorts of ways of cutting this cake. This isn't the only way of analyzing material. It's the way that I think may be helpful for us today. As we come to Jesus as historians, we are doing substantially uh, what one might do with John the Baptist or with Paul or, for that matter, with Tiberius Caesar, with Herod, with any number of figures from the first century. We are using the sources responsibly as historians to say, uh, who are we talking about? What did they think? What did they aim to do? Sometimes the answer is we don't know too clearly. Sometimes the answer is we know only too clearly. And it's in that light as part of the historical task that I am speaking. And this doesn't mean bracketing out theology. Um, there, there are one or two more chairs around if you, if you look. In fact, there's two right here in the front. Three right here in the front. Help yourself to some seats, please. Don't be shy. It's the penalty for arriving slightly late that you get to sit in a prominent position if you're not careful. And uh, the first thing, that, the first category that I want to offer you, which represents, I think, what Jesus' contemporaries would have seen as he was going around Galilee, is that Jesus was a prophet, that he was perceived to be a prophet and was happy to be perceived as a prophet. Uh, this is unfashionable in some quarters. I'm not, in this presentation, going to engage in debate with uh, other major schools like the Jesus Seminar and so on, which are around at the moment, but there's plenty of room for discussion about that later. I just want to say, it seems to me from all the evidence, Jesus was perceived as a prophet and intended to be perceived as a prophet. He spoke of himself as a prophet. A prophet is not without honor in his own country. It's impossible that a prophet should peri perish away from Jerusalem. And even when the evangelists are summing up who Jesus was in ways which make it quite clear that they think he's much more than a prophet, they put prophet there as one of the key categories. The disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, when Luke clearly wants to say he's much more than that. Lots of seats in in the middle, um, if you can clamber over and find your way through. It would be awfully boring for you to stand in the door and draft it for everybody else as well, so do, do come in. 
Uh, so Jesus was equipped, therefore, by God, believed he was equipped and called by Israel's God to be God's mouthpiece to God's people. This is not an unusual thing for a historian to discover, not least in first century Judaism. There is an old myth that prophecy had ceased many years before, but in fact the pages of Josephus are littered with prophetic or quasi-prophetic figures, some of whom simply speak, some of whom lead movements, some of whom do both, like John the Baptist, for instance. And this, one may conclude as a historian quite safely, is not something that people just woke up one day and found themselves doing. Like John the Baptist didn't sort of wake up one day and think, gee, I'm going to go and splash some water over people and see what happens. I think one has to conclude as a historian that John the Baptist believed he had a call from Israel's God. Presumably that meant some matter of prayer and fasting or whatever, uh, to be God's mouthpiece to God's people. And I believe we can say no less about Jesus of Nazareth. And he engaged in an itinerant, prophetic ministry. And when people saw him coming into the village and heard what he was doing and saw and told stories about him, this was the primary category, I believe, that they used and Jesus was happy that they should use it. But, unlike some prophets, Jesus, and this is my second category and the largest and most comprehensive of all the categories really here, Jesus was an eschatological prophet announcing the kingdom of God. Uh, I'll say again, there are more chairs, one or two, one, two, one or two, two up here, help yourselves. Jesus is an eschatological prophet. This means that we have to presuppose, as part of Jesus' worldview and mindset, that Jesus plugged into one strand at least of Jewish expectation. A word about Jewish expectation. A vital move in the whole scenario. Central to Israel's self-understanding making all sorts of allowances for the Judaisms, plural of the period, and for the fact that you can never be sure with any generalization just how many people it actually fits, but central to one major strand, anyway, running right through the Hebrew Scriptures and through into Rabbinic Judaism, is the idea that world history and cosmic history is somehow focused on Israel and Israel's story and history. As one of the rabbis says in the book called Genesis Rabbah, one of the rabbinic texts, that God said to himself, I will make Adam first, and if he goes wrong, I will send Abraham to sort it all out. The call of Abraham, the call of Israel to be God's people, is not there for its own sake. It's there in order to deal with the problem of the world. Somehow, there's a basic to Jewish belief that world history is focused upon Israel. And then, the second point, which is presuppositional to this, this business about the, uh, Jesus as an eschatological prophet, is that Jews in the first century, as I said last night, in many cases did not believe that the exile was really over. The exile was still continuing. Yes, they'd come back geographically from Babylon, but uh, no Jew who really had their eyes open in the first century would have dreamt of saying that the promises of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Malachi, etc., had been fulfilled. The closest we come to people saying that are the, uh, the work of Ben Sira, who seems to think at one point in 200 uh, BC or so, um, that actually God's in his heaven, the high priest's in the temple, and that's it, everything's okay now. 
um, and then of course the, the Maccabean crisis comes up and the whole thing gets blown apart but uh, the majority of Jews in Jesus' day witnessed the Qumran scrolls for instance seemed to construe the whole story Adam, Abraham, Moses, the kingdom and then the exile as now reaching its climax now is the time, very soon now when the prophecies are going to be fulfilled and uh, if you take a book like uh, Second Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 55, which I should be looking at in another context this evening, you find that there is uh, a constant repetition of certain strands: return from exile, the overcoming of evil once and for all, and the return of Yahweh to Zion. That's an understated theme in Jewish eschatology, at least in Christian readings of Jewish eschatology. But I believe it's absolutely central and vital for understanding Jesus: return from exile, defeat of evil, and return of Yahweh to Zion. And Jesus, therefore, as an eschatological prophet announcing the kingdom, is telling the story of Israel in such a way as to say, this story is now reaching its climax. The phrase kingdom of God is a code for all of that. As if you read Isaiah 52, 6 to 12, uh, you will see. Uh, Our God reigns, in other words, God is becoming king, carries with it Return from exile, defeat of evil, return of Yahweh to Zion. So when Jesus came into Galilee after John's imprisonment, saying, God is now becoming king, the kingdom of God is at hand, this is what they heard. The claim was that Israel's story was now reaching its climax through him and what he was doing. This is the moment. Now at last, our God is becoming king. That's my second point, therefore. Jesus was an eschatological prophet announcing the kingdom of God. And thirdly, therefore, Jesus was a prophet of renewal, like other would-be first century prophets, reconstituting Israel in and around himself. There were other leaders of the period. I want to stress this. It doesn't make Jesus odd historically. It makes him right in the middle of the first century. Jesus believed that his vocation, or part of his vocation, was to regroup and restore the people of God in and around himself. That is to say that he and his followers constituted the real Israel. Lots of analogies again with Qumran. Some analogies perhaps with some at least of the Pharisaic movements. Uh, Jesus, therefore, was constituting in himself not only a sense of true Israel, God's renewal of God's people, but also a counter-temple movement. This is enormously important, I think, and again often missed in studies of Jesus. Jesus was uh, doing and saying things which were quietly subverting the temple system, which stood at the heart of everything that Judaism was. He invited people to join his movement. He welcomed them, even if they didn't go through all the official hoops. He challenged them to a new way of being Israel, and he summoned some at least to accompany him in a journey, a literal geographical journey, uh, which was going to make his movement reach its climax in turn when they arrived in Jerusalem. A word about that invitation, as there's some fascinating stuff here which is not as widely known as I think it should be. 
Jesus said in according to Mark 1:15 following and the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke repent and believe the gospel the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel you may know what the Jesus seminar did with that they carved it into four and voted separately on each bit and the thing came out as a, a complete rainbow of colors um, uh, that's partly because I think they didn't get into the Jewish background or context of what's happening here. What does that mean, repent and believe the gospel? If you walk out on the main street of New Haven today and shout, repent and believe the gospel, what people will hear you say is, give up your private sins and get religion. Is that what Jesus meant? There's an extraordinary little passage in Josephus' autobiography, chapter 110. They're short chapters, so don't worry. Uh, Josephus, writing towards the end of the century, describes a moment in what we call AD 66, when he, Josephus, was sent from Jerusalem to Galilee to confront one of the brigand leaders, who happens confusingly to have been called Jesus the Galilean. Uh, They were short on boys' names in first century Palestine. Um, I think there's 17 Jesuses in the index to Josephus. Uh, And Josephus was confronting this revolutionary leader. Josephus, as an aristocrat, wanted to do things more subtly. He didn't want to get into this crazy, hot-headed, holy brigandry. And so he confronts Jesus the Galilean, and he says, I want you to give up your agenda and to trust me for mine. Only what he says in Greek is, I told him to metanoesin kaipistos emoi genesistai. In other words, I told him to repent and believe in me. And when I first read that, I nearly fell off my chair, which, as I was in a plane at the time, would have been awkward. I, here is somebody describing an incident that took place roughly when Mark is writing his gospel, middle to late 60s. And that's what those words meant. Give up your agendas, trust me for mine. Now, I think that Jesus of Nazareth meant more than Josephus, but I don't think he meant any less. So Jesus, as a prophet of renewal, this is my third point, and that's just one little window into it, was challenging people to give up their way of being Israel and to trust him for his. And this leads to the fourth point, which is that Jesus was a teacher of subversive wisdom. This is where all that stuff that's thrown around in some quarters at the moment, not least by Crossan and my very good friend Marcus Borg and various other people, uh, I think can fit into this larger Jewish eschatological picture. They make out Jesus to be first and foremost a teacher of subversive wisdom and then use that to exclude all that eschatological stuff. I think that's quite mistaken historically. Jesus rather drew on the rich Jewish tradition of wisdom, which was easily combined with prophetic and eschatological and renewal strands, offering the way of true wisdom as opposed to the way he saw his contemporaries going, which he said was the way of folly. Again and again in Jesus' proclamation, in all sorts of strands of the tradition, however you like to line it up, there is this choice, the house which is built on the rock as opposed to the house that is built on the sand, the wise and the foolish girls at the beginning of Matthew 25, and so on. That's a classic piece of Jewish wisdom theology. Here is the right way to go and here is the wrong way to go. One is the way of wisdom, one is the way of folly. But it's all within the eschatological context. Wisdom consists in understanding what God is doing here and now in your history. 
and getting on board, giving up your way of folly and coming on board with the true way of wisdom. And ultimately, this is the most deeply subversive wisdom because it tells people to do all the wrong things and to stand their worldview on its head. Blessed are the poor and the meek and the peacemakers. All the wrong people. Not blessed are the holy revolutionaries sharpening their swords to stick into the pagan Romans. No, blessed are the peacemakers. That's not what people want to hear. And likewise, uh, not blessed are those who defend the temple to the last ditch, but rather blessed are those who hear what I'm saying and follow me, because unless you come this way, you are building the house not on the rock but on the sand. And the house on the rock is a, a classic Jewish temple image. The house on the rock, which is Zion. Look, look through. Uh, ben Meyer is awfully good on this. Uh, a great uh, New Testament historian and theologian teaching in McMaster University. Um, so Jesus is offering the ultimate subversive wisdom. And the climax of that is, of course, the call to take up the cross and follow him. Uh, that is richly metaphoric within Jesus' setting. There were thousands of Jews crucified uh, around the time Jesus was born, again and again during his lifetime, and there would be again and again until eventually Titus had so many crucified in AD 70 that there wasn't enough room around the walls and there wasn't enough wood for the crosses. This was a, uh, an awesome image which hangs like a pall over the whole of first century Judaism. And instead of going the way that most of his contemporaries wanted him to, of saying, uh, we've got the movement which is going to drive out the Romans and win our liberty at last, Jesus is saying again and again, you have to stand the whole thing on its head. If you want to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, you will save it. And that's my fourth point, that Jesus is a teacher of subversive wisdom. And my fifth point, therefore, is that Jesus was in and through, and in the middle of all of that, a messianic claimant. As a historian, one must say, I believe, Jesus was claiming to be the true anointed leader. This, please note, does not mean Jesus was going around saying, I'm God incarnate. As far as we know, Jesus did not go around making sort of second person of the Trinity claims like that. Uh, and there were plenty of other first century Jews who thought that they were God's anointed. Uh, the classic example actually on into the second century is Simeon ben Kozibar, uh, who was hailed as the son of the star, Bar Kokhba, uh, by no less than the great rabbi Akiba himself. Um, it wasn't an odd thing for Jews to think that maybe they were the Lord's anointed. There are, I count roughly 15 messianic or quasi-messianic movements between about 50 BC and 150 AD, and Jesus is right in the middle of that. And what that means is that Jesus is plugging into a very fluid and not fixed tradition. If you look at the different messianic movements, it's quite clear that there were all sorts of different ways that people thought God might act through the true king. Even old Herod thought that if he succeeded in building the temple and then bequeathed to his sons and heirs the task of finishing that, his royal house might just be established as the true royal kingdom, even though he wasn't from the house of David, and even though he wasn't particularly Torah observant, etc., the concept of kingship, of messiahship, was flexible and could be redrawn around particular charismatic or otherwise leader figures. But at least it seems to have meant this, that Jesus believed that Israel was being remade around him and that his movement was the one which would fight the true battle of the people of God, which would defeat the true enemies of the people of God, and which would bring in God's kingdom at last. 
To bring out the flavor of this, I want you to think about uh, that Caesarea Philippi incident in Mark 8 and Matthew 16, when Jesus takes the disciples way off up to the north, to the slopes of Mount Hermon, the place which is now called Banias, the shrine of the god Pan, Caesarea Philippi. And he says, who do people say that I am? Now, we have read that all too often, I believe, as though it is the request for a fully blown Christian confession of faith. So that when Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, we think, there it is, Peter is halfway to the Nicene Creed. But it's, it doesn't, if you think historically, it doesn't work like that at all. Uh, what is going on is much more like somebody after being elected to Congress or whatever, or a member of Parliament in my country, uh, five or six years down the track, gets together one evening uh, with a few close friends and advisors over a few beers and says, now look, I want you to tell me where my career is going. And what are people saying out there in the corridors of power? And they say, well, the word on the street is that you're doing okay. Um, some people think, you know, you could be heading for reasonably high office and You've got the, the, the makings to be a cabinet minister or whatever. And then he says, but, but, but what do you say? And they say, we think you could be president. And he says, campaign starts tonight. <laughs> okay? Peter says, you're the Messiah. Okay, we're going up to Jerusalem. Of course, where else would you go? If you're uh, acclaimed as Messiah out there in the sticks, you've got to go to the capital. That's where kings get crowned and enthroned. And so within that context, he tells them, and this is moving on into my sixth point, one, two, three, four, four it's his sixth point, uh, he tells them what's going to happen in Jerusalem, tapping into the subversive wisdom which he's been announcing and drawing on all sorts of strands of scriptural expectation and prophecy and doing new things with it. And they cannot hear what he said because his... Uh, th their perception of him as Messiah means that they think we're going up to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to be king, we're going to get the top jobs, and he's going to put, he's going to defeat the Romans, and he's going to put Israel back on top of the world, and everything will be sorted out. God's kingdom will come, and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Terrific. So when he says stuff about the Son of Man being handed over and crucified, and on the third day being raised, they, I'm sure, read that as deeply symbolic, that what they hear is... We're going up to the capital. Some of us may get hurt. Some of us may get killed. But we're going to win. Of course they follow him. That's what they want to hear. And when he says, look, it's going to happen to me. Oh, no, don't be silly. Can't mean that. So they don't understand. That seems to me thoroughly historically credible. I know that all sorts of scholars have dismissed that entire tradition as being, you know, later Christian extrapolation back and so on and so forth. Uh, I think the historian's task is to see if you can actually make sense of that, and that's how I would do it. So my sixth point is that Jesus believed that he would bring in the kingdom by and through his own death. Now there are all sorts of strands which come in here and I can't go into them in any great detail in this brief presentation. I'll come back to them later if you want. But there is, just to give you a, a, a brief outline, there is particularly the strand of exile and restoration about which I shall be saying more this evening. At the exile of Israel, according to prophecy, was the punishment for Israel's sins. And so as they were living in the exile, continuing as it was, they were still in the present evil age, the time of sorrow, the time of woe, the time of punishment. And in some Jewish writings, by no means all but in some, there was a sense that the only way you would get out of exile was when the pain of exile intensified and increased. 
to the screaming point. Uh, this is sometimes called the messianic woes or the great tribulation or some such other titles and scholars play around with that and which texts refer to it, etc. But there would come, come a time of great tribulation and through that and out the other side God would bring about the redemption. Here is where I believe Albert Schweitzer got it right on the nail. Albert Schweitzer said Jesus was living within that story and believed that he had to go to the eye of the storm and let it do its worst to him. Uh, and Schweitzer read the Gethsemane story as Jesus talking about the pirasmos, the time of tribulation. Watch and pray that you may not enter the tribulation. Schweitzer believed that Jesus had to go and let exile happen to him so that through that Israel and thence the world might be redeemed. And in the middle of that, I am perfectly happy to say, although it's still a matter of huge controversy, that Jesus plugged into certain readings of Daniel 7 and certain readings of Isaiah 52 and 3 and plenty of other texts as well, but those two in particular. Not that there was a well-known messianic atoning reading of those texts sitting around that everybody knew that he just uh, pulled off the shelf, but that in his creative re-reading of those texts, he was doing what he thought was an authentic re-performance within the whole narrative that the kingdom would come in and through his own death and in there as well you've got the theme of martyrdom you've got the theme of the temple that if Jesus is a counter temple movement what he is doing is what the temple was supposed to do what, what the temple was and did and uh, a footnote on that on that sixth point I'm nearly done a footnote on that that if any Jew in the first century believed that it was his or her vocation from Yahweh, the God of Israel, to die as part of God's plan, it is to me unthinkable that they wouldn't also believe that God would vindicate them by raising them to life after that. You only have to read 2 Maccabees to see in that awesome chapter 2 Maccabees 7 uh, the, the, the story of the brothers and the mother who are sent to an awful tortured death saying things like uh, you can do this to me but God is going to vindicate me. God is going to give me this body back again. Uh, that seems to me a normal thing for a Jew to believe. Uh, and indeed, it would be very odd if they didn't. So, Jesus' predictions of his resurrection, again, do not have to be read as simply, oh, well, the early church stuck that in, wouldn't they? You know, there's no easy knockdown argument against that, but simply to say that uh, it seems to me incomprehensible that a Jew who believed that God was calling him or her uh, to undergo death as part of God's purposes would also affirm that God would raise them to life afterwards. My final point, and I'm uh, horribly aware of the amount that I'm leaving out as well as everything else, my, my final point is that Jesus, in believing all of this as part of his vocation, believed that he was also embodying that theme which I mentioned before, namely the return of Yahweh to Zion. This is not usually recognized, so let me just spell it out a little bit. It goes right through uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Zechariah, etc. Yahweh will come back. 
How will he come back? What will it look like when he does? Malachi 3, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Jesus told a lot of stories about a king or a master who went away and would come back suddenly and unexpectedly. The church from quite early on, at least the second century, read those cheerfully as stories about Jesus himself going away in the ascension and returning again in the second coming. And I wouldn't necessarily say that that is an illegitimate subsequent reading. But I'm quite sure it's not what those texts actually originally meant. There's a very interesting article by Luke Timothy Johnson on uh, Luke 19:11 following, one of the greatest stories in this genre, showing that that normal reading doesn't actually work in terms of the parable. If you look at the Jewish parables of this period, say the parables in the rabbinic tractate Perke Avot, you find lots of little stories about a master or a king and servants or subjects, and they are always about Yahweh and Israel. And what you find in Luke, Luke 19, they were getting near Jerusalem and Jesus told them this parable because they supposed the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now many people have said, well he told them this story to say, no, 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 the kingdom isn't going to appear immediately. There's going to be a long gap. I'm going to go away. You're going to have jobs to do. You're going to be something called the church and then I will return in a long time away in the future and I'll sort you out and see what's happened, how you've been getting on. Makes no sense in that context. Luke certainly didn't intend it that way. Because when the parable is over, Jesus then rides over the Mount of Olives on a donkey, declaring God's judgment on the city, weeping bitterly, and goes into the temple and does what Malachi says Yahweh will do, coming suddenly to the temple. Seems to me, this is just a tiny little bit of a much larger argument, that Jesus embraced what I can only call the most scary and risky and crazy vocation. That he had to do and be what, in those prophecies, Israel's God said that he would do and be. Coming back to Israel at last in order to judge and to save, and that Jesus' death and his announcement of judgment and his warnings about what would happen if you didn't come this way, these are all part of this risky vocation, to do and be for Israel and the world what Israel's God had said that he would do and be for Israel and for the world. I therefore conclude, and I'm done now, I therefore conclude that as historians we can, despite the skepticism of many, construct a portrait, if you like, a sketch, whatever, an outline of who Jesus was, which makes sense historically and which can also be understood as the starting point of what subsequently became Christian theology. Not that Paul simply parroted what Jesus said. He didn't. But that we can see lines going out from this point so that it does not become such a huge step to think of somebody writing a letter in AD 49, that's when I think Galatians was written, saying, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that is... I've lost count of the number of hostages to fortune I've given in the last 20 minutes, but um, I have... If any of you know this debate, I I have um, really laid myself wide open on all counts. So that that is the the, the sketch, the portrait, which I want to offer you. And we have, um, I don't know, an hour or more for questions and discussion.
I don't know if you want to start or... Uh... So what did you think? I know it was quick. <laughs> he went lightning fast through some of that. And uh, if it was all new to you, your head might be spinning a bit right now. I understand. That's normal. Again, you're going to have to get some of his books to unpack. He goes into great detail, great depth. Uh, goes passage by passage uh, through the Gospels a lot of times, showing how all of this fits, how what it all means, how it brings greater understanding to the Gospels, and also uh, understanding to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And as I said at the beginning of this show today, there are an additional 50 minutes of Q&A afterwards, uh, which I cut out. Uh, they might help clarify a few things. Uh, but I cut them out because I listened to them and I thought while they were good, uh, they didn't really help clarify things too much. Uh, I mean, to be honest, uh, it seemed to me, and maybe I'm over, overly critical, but it seemed to me that a lot of the questions, I mean, this was at Yale Divinity School, uh, it seemed to me a lot of the questions were from Yale students who were in, more interested in sort of giving their own opinions maybe giving their own mini five-minute lectures sometimes while N.T. Wright graciously listened and, and nodded his head uh, rather than asking an actual question to N.T. Wright. But I don't know, that's typical, I suppose, in those sort of settings. I went to seminary myself, and I, I often sat there at the end of class listening to students lecture the professor while the professor graciously sat there and smiled at them. And I'm thinking, just let the professor talk. <laughs> we're, we're paying to have him talk, not you. Anyway, um, listen, uh, he... he some of the questions were good. Uh, I cut them out, though. It's 50 minutes. You can get them yourself. But uh, one of the questions, for example, he gave a great answer to this uh, question about why there are differences in the Gospels, uh, in some of the parables and some of the teachings of Jesus. You know, why there are some people say, oh, well, there's errors. Look, this, this account over in Matthew, it differs from the one over in Luke. And so clearly Jesus couldn't have said the, the uh, same, you know, two different things on that one occasion. So there must be some sort of error here. N.T. Wright gives a fantastic explanation for why that. And in fact, he, he says that if there weren't these differences, we should be worried. And uh, he gives why, uh, gives a logical and historical reason why we should expect these sorts of differences. So, so that might be worth we, uh, listening to. You can go uh, get that. Again, the link to the, the entire hour and a half is in the show notes. Uh, you can find those show notes at theology.fm. N.T. Wright slash 05. So that's theology.fm slash N.T. Wright slash 05. And while you're there, go ahead and leave a comment about uh, your thoughts on what N.T. Wright had to say. And as long as you're leaving a comment, uh, hey, use those share buttons there to share this episode with uh, your friends and family on Facebook and Twitter or Google or wherever else that uh, you interact with people. And um, boy... I would also appreciate it if you leave a review on iTunes. Those reviews help other people find these uh, episodes, and uh, they will benefit as well from what N.T. Wright says. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of Theology.fm. <laughs>